Hello and welcome to Bone Up, the podcast all about bones, how we make them, why we break them, and if we fully understand them. I'm David Armstrong. Hi, and I'm Richie Abel. And over this series, we're going to be exploring osteoporosis, bones, what we know and what we're yet to discover. And we hope you will join us on the journey. So for anyone keen to learn more about our infrastructure of calcified collagen, this is Bone Up. Hey, David, how are you doing on this uh, beautiful Friday afternoon? I'm doing well. It might be beautiful where you are, but it's been snowing here in, in Northern Ireland for the last hour or so. so <laughs> but uh, but yeah, it's, it's lovely to meet up on a Friday afternoon and to do our podcast. I was, um, I was seeing osteoporosis patients this morning and then doing some work with the fracture liaison nurses this afternoon. But I always look forward to the, to the Fridays where we meet up and, uh, and have our guest on and, and, and talk about all things bone. Yeah, me too. I really like uh, doing the podcast on a Friday afternoon. It's a good way to finish off the week. And it's a nice way before the weekend to remind me why I do this job in the first place. It is. And it's lovely to get feedback, as we know, from different from patients and GPs and from different parts of the world as well. We're getting lots of, of positive feedback. So if you have if you have communicated with us, we, we thank you and and hello to you. And, uh, and indeed, even even this morning, I was involved in, a, in a, an online uh, study and with some patient advocates were there as well. And someone was saying that they listened to and enjoyed the podcast and find it a useful source of information for their condition. So we're glad we are able to contribute in that way. That's wonderful. I, I concur. Thank you to everybody who's been in touch with us, who's emailed and uh, supported us on Twitter. I have some good information just in today, we have passed 3,000 downloads in total. Well, that's, that's, that's great news, a nice, nice milestone for our project. And of course, the project started, Richie, when we first met each other at a, at a Royal Osteoporosis Society event or as a National Osteoporosis Society, as it was back then in, in London. And as you remember, we were on a, a course uh, for what were called aspiring leaders. I think they maybe were going to call it younger leaders, but then they looked at some of us when we turned up and, and just uh, <laughs> and maybe changed their mind. But um, but one of the things came out of that course, and of course we get lots of, of, of teaching about how to about how to advocate and explain and and, and develop uh, the way we represented osteoporosis to people. But one of the things came out of that was that they encouraged us to give something back to the osteoporosis community. And I suppose the podcast here is is what came out of of that. Mm. They the aspiring leaders course was really wonderful. They taught us a lot about communication. They taught us a lot about listening. They taught us a lot about working in teams. I found it a really useful course. And I suppose at the end, Fizz Thompson asked us to give something back, and this is our way of giving something back to the society and thanking them for bringing us together in the scientist clinical speed dating event that was the aspiring <laughs> leaders course 
that's right. And uh, and so, I mean, today we're there, we're, we've talked about the Royal Osteoporosis Society, and today our guest is the is the chief executive of the Osteoporosis Society, and uh, I think we can still call him relatively new chief executive of the Royal Osteoporosis Society, uh, Craig Jones. And I mean, wh- when I think of, of the ROS, obviously it it gave us the the idea and the support to start this podcast. Um, it's a fantastic organization that provides support and education to patients through their helpline, through uh, information uh, on the website, through supporting patient groups. It gives great information and support to healthcare professionals, runs conferences, runs education courses. Um, and I suppose from your point of view, then it also supports research. It does. The ROS supports research in so many ways especially ones that I've benefited from. So I'm really grateful. They have a good public patient involvement group. And for me as a scientist applying for grants, it's really important that I can demonstrate that the ideas I have developed solve real world problems. And the public patient involvement group helps me to justify the research that I'm doing and demonstrate the importance of it and the potential real world impact. The clinicians on the society as well, including yourself, give me a lot of guidance about the problems in healthcare and what needs to be solved. The society provides direct research funding. And in 2018, I was a recipient of one of their grants. And the work has been published and has helped me develop a whole new strand of research in my lab, which is now being done by a PhD student and a postdoc. So I've managed to multiply their money. And the other place that the Society has been really useful is in communicating research back to the patients and back to the clinicians. It kind of provides a 360 view in that way. And obviously they got us together and helped us get going with this podcast and have been supporting it since we started it. And for me, the biggest problem as a researcher has always been making contact with clinicians. You're all so busy that it's sometimes hard to get FaceTime to talk about the problems, to think about how we might work together to develop some solutions through research. And the society has given me the credibility and the standing to be able to get time with clinicians, you know, which is very valuable and, and start projects, which is absolutely amazing. You know, they've been a really good advocate for me and for you, I think. And it's just wonderful. It's a wonderful, wonderful charity. It's interesting in doing this podcast. Sometimes after the after the microphone is turned off, we've had great chats with our guests, and I know you certainly, as, as a scientist, have had great chats with some of, of the clinicians and some of the other scientists we've had on about about even working together and and, and ideas have have come from that. So, I mean, we've always always intended to shine the spotlight on the ROS, but this seemed to be a particularly good time as uh, as they are launching, just really in the process uh, in the next day or two of launching a new strategy. And it's exciting, a new vision from the charity. As you mentioned, they've always been very good. Craig Jones has big boots to fill, Claire Severini and Fizz Thompson. His precursors were absolutely wonderful and took the charity in amazing directions. And I'm really excited to talk to Craig today about his vision and where he wants to take the charity and how he wants to improve their work going forward. That's great. So uh, without further ado, we will uh, speak to Craig. It's a great pleasure today to introduce Craig Jones, who is the Chief Executive Officer at the Royal Osteoporosis Society. And Craig has a really interesting and diverse background. 
I've been doing a bit of an internet stalk. Prior to his role at the ROS, Craig spent a decade in senior leadership roles in regulators and membership organizations in the media, legal and financial sectors. And before that, Craig was a communications advisor to a cabinet minister overseeing stakeholder engagements on the Equality Act. And his career began at the Bar of England and Wales, where he practiced criminal and public law. What a wonderful background. Welcome, Craig. Welcome, Craig. Lovely to see you. Hi, Richie, and hi, David. Thanks for having me on. It's really great to have you talking to us today. We're wondering if you could just tell us a little bit about your role at the Royal Osteoporosis Society. Yeah, really happy to. Well, my role as CEO is to coordinate the activities of the charity. Um, And as you both will know, and some listeners will know, we have around 50 odd staff. We're about 5 million turnover as a charity. So um, in comparison with other charities, we're medium sized. Uh, We have a 30 year history uh, going back to the days of our founder, Linda Edwards, a very inspiring lady. Um, and my role is to, uh, I suppose, be the public face of the charity, whether that's in Parliament or in the media, um, as well as to oversee the running of its services, uh, the income generation that helps it all to happen, um, and some of the clinical engagement as well. We've seen that you've released a new strategy called Breaking the Silence. I wonder if you could explain to us what your vision is. Yeah, and it's a really good chance for me to introduce that to the clinical community. This is our new four-year strategy. Um, The reason we did an early strategy review was to recognise the amount of change that there's been in the external environment since 2019, which is when we last reviewed our strategy. If you think about how much society has changed and how much the NHS has changed since that time, it felt right to do a temperature check on what kind of how how can ROS do the best possible job uh, given the treatment gap that we now have in the NHS, uh, given the demand that we're now seeing, um, and also given some of the government initiatives uh, focused on the NHS going forward. So our board and we thought it was the right time to do a strategy review. Um, We did a big consultation on it where we commissioned original research from uh, public members, uh, healthcare professional members, Uh, Also, we did structured interviews with some really senior people in Parliament, in the NHS leadership, uh, in public authorities like Public Health England and others, uh, to get a bit of a 360 on how well ROS is doing, um, how to sustain those areas going forwards, um, but also how to modernise ourselves and take a bit of a step up in some dimensions as well. Um, And the new strategy, uh, which we are in the process of launching, sets out a new direction for the next four years. It sounds like you've delivered a really wide-ranging consultation there. How are you able to get in touch with people in Parliament and the policymakers and get them engaged? Well, we've been building our contacts over the last two years, really. And uh, I mean, something ROS has traditionally been really good at is on-the-ground delivery um, through our fantastic networks of healthcare professionals. Um, And I think something that perhaps the organisation uh, uh, dialed down in recent years was its kind of national engagement on the national stage, engaging the top decision makers. And what we've tried to do over the last two years is to fill our address book. So to relaunch our all party parliamentary group in, in Parliament, uh, to extend that to the devolved nations uh, with some 
great activity going on in Holyrood at the moment and soon to be in the Senedd in Wales as well. Um, and what we've done over the last 18 months is to build a network of contacts and engage some of the really key people in uh, NHS England who are behind Best MSK Health, uh, some of the key decision makers in what was Public Health England, uh, and also um, some of the devolved agencies as well. And the, the really useful thing there has been to uh, ask them what their perception of, the, of osteoporosis and bone health is, get a sense of whether they've heard of ROS before, and if they haven't, to get a sense of you know, what in their eyes could make ROS more of a player when it comes to the really big ticket decisions happening in terms of the health service over the coming years. The results were fascinating and they fed into this new strategy. Are there any risks, do you feel, in being seen as a, as a political lobby group? Maybe that's the wrong expression. Um, or is there a, a risk that it could take away from any of the other fantastic work the ROS does that we, we've talked about even in our introduction? What I hope is that it'll be a real facilitator for all of the rest of our work. And in fact, I think we need to be at the centre of all these debates. Um, there's a real competition when it comes to uh, different disease areas. Um, there are some really impressive charities who are spearheading work on behalf of other conditions. Um, and if we, if we don't put osteoporosis and bone health at the centre of some of these discussions around prevention, around the menopause, the women's health strategy, the long-term plan, the One Wales programme that's, that's happening in Wales, um, if we don't do that, then, then others will fill the space instead. Um, what we picked up on as we did this strategy was that um, the treatment gap for osteoporosis, as you both know much better than me, um, was startlingly wide even before the pandemic. You know, two thirds of women not getting the treatment they need. Uh, evidence that we took on our all party parliamentary group inquiry recently that suggested that as many as 90,000 people could be missing out on the medication they need to keep their bones strong. And that's been the case for a long time. No doubt it's got worse in the pandemic. And you don't see that with other disease areas. And when we looked into, we did a simple Hansard search about 18 months ago to see how many times osteoporosis was mentioned in Westminster. And the answer was 34 times over five years. And you could compare that to, say, arthritis, which had about a thousand mentions. And you can get a sense of, you know, it perhaps is less surprising how resources are not coming our way as much as they have been for other areas. Um, I'm happy to say that since we've dialed up our political influencing, uh, we've we've had more mentions of osteoporosis in the last eight months than over the ten years previously, um, and that is that's included three meetings with the minister, the key minister. It's included a visit to to the health advisors, the PM's advisors, and number ten, uh, a mass virtual lobby of parliament with our volunteers. So we're starting to get a hearing that we didn't get before. And we're starting to kind of push ourselves up people's priority list. And I think that will complement the traditional work that ROS has done on service improvement and education and networking for healthcare professionals. But something you're right on, David, is that we have to be really careful not to be seen as party political. So we take a constructive approach in our tone. Uh, we don't make cheap shots against any party. And in fact, we want to influence all of the parties rather than just one. Yeah, that's uh, the new strategy we've we've had a look at it. it. It's interesting. Do you want to just? I mean, we we've put a link to it on our our site, but do you want to just highlight the the, the strands in it for our, for our listeners who maybe haven't seen it just yet? Yeah, I'd really love to actually. And it's got three really key aims. 
Um, the first is to drive prevention of fractures amongst people who are higher risk. The second is to ensure quick, uh, quicker diagnosis and better ongoing care wherever people live. And that's about ending the postcode lottery for fracture liaison services and other things. And thirdly, to support more people to live well with a condition. And on, on our website is the strategy, and that's got uh, six different strands. The first strand is awareness. We've called it awareness because we think that there's a job to do in just putting this condition on the map more. Uh, there's low levels of public awareness. Big organizations who should be talking about this uh, are not talking about it. And we want to ramp up the level of discussion of osteoporosis in civil society. That means more media coverage. Uh, it means uh, getting organizations like the Centre for Aging Better, who we're currently talking to, and Age UK doing more on this. That's the first strand. The second strand is called prevention. Uh, it learns from our colleagues in Australia, New Zealand and Canada who have done some really inspiring work on online risk assessments, which invite people to put their, uh, their information about their family history and conditions and medications in and gives them a risk score that then helps them have a good conversation with their GP and it gets them into the system quicker if they're at higher risk. The third strand is called influencing care. That's about the political lobbying I've just mentioned, uh, making sure that osteoporosis is put right at the top of the public health agenda, because if you look at its social costs, it deserves to be. Uh, the fourth strand is called support, and that's ROS's traditional work on providing advice to live well to people. Although we want to branch out from our successful helpline and do much more digitally with a target of reaching um, a million pieces of advice for people by 2025, up from 300,000 last year. Um, and then finally, uh, we've got the equity strand, um, and that recognises that there are some groups that experience osteoporosis even more severely than, than most people. Um, and perhaps ROS hasn't been so good at reaching some of those groups in the past. Um, and then finally, there's some work on sustainability as well, which is about investing in our people, making sure they are the best at what they do, um, prizing financial responsibility and uh, running an effective organisation. Wow, that sounds quite a, an impressive programme and, and a lot going on. And I think your last two strands, you mentioned the, the sort of equity and the sustainability, they sort of run through the rest of the programme. That's... Uh, what you were saying. I mean, in terms of, of, of equity, it's something we're all very conscious of in healthcare provision now. And sometimes the groups uh, of people that we particularly want to target in osteoporosis are, are different from other areas. I mean, one of the things we've come across uh, in terms of male and female, it's sometimes harder to reach men with osteoporosis, sometimes harder to get funding for drugs with men for osteoporosis. Um, there's other groups of people, uh, for example, those with mental health issues, those who perhaps uh, have memory problems, those who live in nursing homes. Uh, and again, speaking as, as, a, as a clinician, it's sometimes hard to reach into those groups. So, I mean, uh, when we're just thinking of being equal, there are different groups in terms of osteoporosis than might just come up when we're thinking about trying to make things equal normally in society. Let's say people with people in, in nursing homes or people with mental health issues, are there particular ways of reaching out to those groups? 
Well, that's what this strand is about trying to find out and really um, ensuring that they get the same level of service as others. You know, when we did the research that informed this strategy, we found that um, the amount of the proportion of people who had to prompt their own health assessment um, and had to had to be quite sharp elbowed in terms of being taken seriously uh, in primary care and getting getting the treatment pathway that they deserve. Um, really quite startling. And something that came out of the research was that lower people from lower income households told us that they experienced osteoporosis even more seriously than, than the norm. Um, they were more likely to have five or more fractures, more likely to be living in long-term pain, uh, more likely to feel socially isolated, uh, to have had to make adjustments in their home, uh, more reliant on other people and less satisfied with the support they were getting from the health service and probably charities like us as well. So there was a message there for us to consider how effectively is ROS reaching people from lower income households? Um, our member demographics suggests not good enough. Um, and I, I think we can add the people that you've just mentioned, David. So, um, you know, our clinical trustees remind us that people with uh, mental health challenges would find it um, potentially even harder uh, to have a good conversation and get the treatment pathway they deserve. So this equity pathway is, <clears throat> sorry, this equity strand is about uh, dialing up our activity, recognising where we need to get better at reaching people. And that includes men and some ethnic minorities as well, um, and putting the spotlight on them. The focus of the strategy as set out seems to mainly focus on over 45s. Given that peak bone mass is obtained earlier, maybe by the age of 25, should the ROS be including more work to prevent fractures by working with teenagers and young people? It's a good challenge, Richie, and that's something that I can imagine us doing in future. Um, it's something we've chosen not to do right now, though. And the reason for that is that when you look at our, our membership at the moment, our 20,000 members, um, they're on the older end of the, the age range. And, and frequently I speak to members who tell me we need to be speaking to younger audiences, and, and I get that. Um, but And the prevention work that we've now put into our agenda, which we're going to kick off later this year, uh, with this bone health assessment tool, learning from the Australians and the Canadians and the New Zealanders, um, we're going to aim that at people who are over the age of 45, because the intelligence that we got when we did the research was that that's when people become a bit more attuned to their general health, feel a bit less indestructible than people who are a bit younger and feel, um, and it's also when menopause kicks in and, and, and that makes it more relevant as well for, for, for women. Um, and what we've said is that for this four year period, we're gonna extend ROS's reach down into that group, which for us is unprecedented. It might feel a bit modest, just going down to that group, but that's that's a big thing for us, and it would involve extending the reach of the organisation quite significantly. What I wouldn't want to do is to cover everybody who's over, say, 20, right the way up to 50, 60, because I think if we do that all in one go, I think we'll struggle to get the impact that we want. But if after these four years we've succeeded in delivering a step change in awareness and prevention amongst people in their 40s, uh, and 50s, I can well imagine us going on to that afterwards, building on that success. Yeah, I think that's reassuring to hear almost because obviously uh, resources are, are finite and you can't do everything at once, but certainly as as researchers, we're very 
aware of this peak bone mass being achieved at 25. And I'm sure you've heard the figures that making a small increase in your peak bone mass makes a huge difference down the line. And certainly, uh, you know, in the future, it would be really good to focus on perhaps even increasing awareness and increasing membership in that younger age group um, who do feel invincible. But it's not sadly, it's the time in which you can put the put the money into the bank in terms of your bones. Yeah, and it's um, it's definitely where we need to go, isn't it? You know, you can imagine an ROS that has a much bigger bone health focus. So we're exploring the idea of a, a bone health platform uh, that, of course, will have an ROS logo on it, but might be a bit more sort of bone health focused that will make us relevant to people who don't yet have the condition. Um, and I'd hope that in, over time we could make this relevant to people who are much younger um, because, you know, people told us uh, during the consultation that it's quite startling how generally people think about their skin and, you know, their their heart or their muscles or their joints and, and they just don't think about their bones. And we've got a real job to do in in giving this the profile that it deserves. Yeah, people sometimes become interested in charities when they're younger, maybe in their 20s, as you, as you know, you know yourself even looking for careers and, and so on and uh, uh, if we can get people involved in in bone health at that early age then maybe that will be something they will carry on as, as a lifelong interest and, and and become lifelong supporters yeah i hope so and and you can well see that being part of the next decade for ros you know we've got a bit of a revolution to bring about if we want to uh, deliver that change in awareness but i really feel after two years of doing this job that you know, we've got the facts on our side. This is something that's relevant yeah. to everybody. Um, you can well imagine grandparents talking to parents, talking to kids about this. Um, and if we played our cards right, we could get to a place where this has a proper, you know, status and standing in the in the national conversation when it comes yeah. to how to live well in later life. And you have to start young to do that. So I hope that's where we can get ROS over the next decade. But for the next four years, we're going to move down to the 40s um, for us, that'll be, you know, breaking new ground. And mm-hmm. what I'm hopeful of is that we don't sort of overload the charity and we make sure that when we do do things which are new, um, we make sure they work, we deliver excellence, bag the learnings, and then we expand out and double down. And I hope we can do that here. I really like the approach that you're taking. You've done a lot of good research to find out exactly where the problems are and how to address them. And it's wonderful that you are targeting the people who are most at risk of the disease and trying to support them. And at the same time, getting support from the people at the other end of the scale, the parliamentary people, the MPs, the civil servants, who I suppose have the power to allocate resources that you can then use in the future, maybe to expand the work that you're going to do with the public into these other age groups and the other groups who might have difficulty accessing healthcare. Assuming that plan works out, how do you think it might be possible in the future to be able to really drill down into the problems of reaching everybody who might be at risk of osteoporosis, whether they're young, whether they're mentally ill, whether they're unable to access healthcare very well for another reason? What, what are you going to be able to do, do you think? Well, um, the way you've summarised it just then, Richie, p- puts it exactly as we think of it inside ROS, which is effectively a kind of two-pronged approach. On the one hand, we want to reduce demand on the health system through our prevention work uh, and through our support services, so helping people to live well with the condition, avoid preventable fractures. 
and we want to use our lobbying uh, to increase supply, if you like, to get more money into this part of the health service. We are saying to government, fracture liaison services are a British-born success story that have been copied all across the world. It's a bitter irony that only 60% of people in this country have access to one. And we've said to them, you know, put a modest investment in, you get £3 out for every pound you put in. And if the infrastructure is there across the country, you could see a real step change in the £2 billion hip fracture spend that the NHS currently spends. Um, And we feel like we're getting a hearing for those arguments now. Um, And I hope that over the course of the next couple of years, we can really take that home, persuade the government to use the women's health strategy, the the work going on under the long-term plan, the setting up of community diagnostic centres, for example, to deliver a step change in the infrastructure across the country when it comes to uh, FLS and improve primary care. And I hope the effect of these two things would eventually be to reduce demands on ROS's support services, uh, because people are getting the help they need within the system. Um, Until then, we expect that people will still come to us in record numbers as they're doing at the moment because the treatment gap is so wide. So so the way that you've just captured our strategy is is right. These are how the support and influencing care and prevention strands all support each other. In terms of your question about how we get support to everybody that needs it, I think part of it is going to be influencing bigger organisations. I would love it if ROS could play an on-the-ground role in every part of the country. And who knows, if we play our cards right one day, we might be able to do that because, you know, we, we, we represent a three and a half million people who've got the condition. This could be, you know, one of the premier charities in the country if you take into account the scale of the issue that we are campaigning on. But we're not at the moment. We're pretty small. And uh, we're conscious that making good things happen depend on influencing bigger players, um, using them as, you know, if you like, signal boosters to get to the people at large. So I think part of it will be influencing the Royal Colleges. Part of it might be influencing other decision makers in the landscape uh, to take more seriously this part of um, our national life, if you like, this this public health challenge, um, and to use them to get to the full quota of people who need us, which is so big as to feel intimidating right now but if we played our cards right we could have a step change over the next 10 years that's the key isn't it influencing the decision makers and it feels like you found a way to make a convincing argument pointing to successful public healthcare interventions and then encouraging the policymakers, the people who can allocate the money and the resources to get behind expanding them and that's, that's the big change in this strategy. Um, and that's why we've called it breaking the silence, because osteoporosis just wasn't part of the conversation. I, I think there's been a, a real, I mean, my sense is coming into this, and you'll both know this much better than me, but coming into this as a relative newcomer to this part of the health landscape. Um, I've been involved in organ donation and the Royal College of Anaesthetists as a board member. But, but this part of the landscape, I, I think, has been quite neglected. Um, and there's been a, something of a feeling of sort of passivity and defeatism. Uh, you know, this sense that it's just part of getting old. Um, and the, the things I've learned from, you know, great people like uh, Neil Gittos on our board and Nikki Peel and people like Kasim Javed, who've worked so closely with us, is that the right therapies exist. Uh, the interventions are out there. We just need to identify the people who need them and get them onto them better. Um, and we've not found these, pol- these arguments difficult to make to policymakers. The evidence is all there. 
you just have to, as we say internally, turn up the volume, um, you know, get doors open to the decision makers and advocate for your case. Um, and that's why that that strand, that influencing care strand is right at the heart of what the difference is for ROS in this new strategy. And when you do that, you can also show the impact that will be had if they do get behind you. One of the things we talk about quite a lot is um, spinal fractures, vertebral fractures. And um, I was speaking to a journalist on the Sunday Times the other day about this. And, you know, that that statistic that we released at the end of last year, 2.2 million people living with undiagnosed vertebral fractures, uh, 70% of them never coming to medical attention. And, you know, the um, the game-changing difference you can make for the NHS if you intervened then instead of waiting until people go through to hip fracture. Um, and we're very lucky to have really great clinicians as part of our all-party group. Um, so the report that they wrote for Parliament in December was a really great piece of work available on our website. Um, and they're making those arguments based on the numbers, which I think speak for themselves. There's one thing in this process that I think may become a problem. I've been working in osteoporosis now for nearly a decade, and the whole time I've been doing it, people have talked about how we have the medicines and all we need to be able to do is identify the people that need those medicines in order to be able to treat the condition and prevent the fractures. But if you talk to clinicians working on the ground, and David might be able to speak here about this, what they often tell me is their clinics are full anyway. And that if they identify more people, there isn't really room in the clinics to meet them, assess them and treat them. If we can identify everybody who needs treatment, who needs consultations, how would it also be possible to make sure that enough resources are allocated to be able to treat all those people in clinical settings? It's a good question, isn't it? And I, I hear this challenge um, quite a lot in relation to fracture liaison services. Um, it's something we've thought about in terms of the uh, prevention approach that we're taking. We're thinking, well, you know, if we inspire lots of people to go and talk to their GP uh, about potentially being at high risk, is the system going to have enough capacity to cope with that? Um, there's another way of looking at it, though, which is that if you if you create more demand in a system, it's creates a, a bit of immovable, an immovable um, and unstoppable force to the decision makers to have to put supply in to deal with that demand. So you can imagine um, more of an impetus for things like uh, fracture liaison services everywhere that they're needed um, if the demand was there, uh, which might be the, um, uh, the good side of, of what's, you know, what might be a problem there. Yeah, it's a question that comes up, I suppose, over and over again, uh, that you can put more pressure onto a service and you may get more funding and more resources and your service may improve, but you can overload a service completely where it then doesn't work at all. And I think it depends how flexible and how sensitive the service is to the pressure that's upon it. So, for example, you mentioned vertebral fractures and, and you know we have ways of identifying vertebral fractures in our trust and in our clinic, but I know there are vertebral fractures out there that we miss, and I know we could put strategies in place to go even further and even deeper to try to identify all vertebral fractures. And we've done little pilot studies, but we know that if we identify those extra fractures, that my clinics, which can't cope with the work that, <laughs> that they have to do at the moment, would then become completely overwhelmed. And the patients who I'm seeing at the moment and doing a good job for would then suffer. 
And if I knew that there were more resources and more doctors and more clinics, which would appear as soon as the demand increased, then I'd be happy to do everything I could to increase the demand. But the, the fear is, particularly in the moment, at the moment in, in the post-COVID sort of environment where you don't want to overload the system because because staff are tired, things are creaking, money is being put into other areas and you know maybe we're depending on the lobbying then so that osteoporosis is sitting higher up people's agenda but but it is a question we, we face over and over again just you know how much pressure do you put on the system uh, to improve things and and what happens if you put so much pressure on that the the system breaks because the system is made up of people of course not only have good patients but doctors and nurses and physios and radiographers are all are all people as well and just at the moment you know people are people are tired i think in the health service they are that, that's right that's that's the um that's the uh the sense we've got from our clinical trustees and others uh members of the clinical committee who who tell us what the feeling is out there and you know we're very conscious of that and that's why we feel that um you know this has to be about putting a bit more money in uh, there has to be about more supply uh, in terms of the infrastructure out there, like fracture liaison services. Um, what we'd hope, though, is that over time, uh, preventable fractures, which, which you know, including really serious ones like hip fractures, that you could get that number down through intervening earlier on the continuum before people mm-hmm. get to the really serious fractures. I hope that would be a reassuring message to policymakers because the argument then becomes well put put you know a pound in now and you know you say five pounds later assuming they have the pound to put in at the start i sometimes feel that if you're making a give us some money now and you'll make a saving down the line they might say no on the basis that they don't have the money to invest at the start there is money announced um, though in the, in the last couple of weeks, isn't there? Um, you know, government has has said that there's a certain uh, fund for NHS recovery and reducing backlogs, um, and there's going to be a lot of campaigning charities who are uh, using their connections through their board members and their uh, their ambassadors and so on to persuade decision makers in the health department to put their condition near the top of the list and. Um, that's something we've not been so good at in the past and we're not going to, we want to really seize the opportunity now because if some money does go in, we want to uh, make sure that osteoporosis is is on people's radar. Speaking of money, one of the things I really like about the ROS is that you fund research. And I saw the other day that you've just announced this year's round of project funding and they all look really exciting. I just wondered if you could explain to us how the science that you're supporting is going to feed into your vision for the ROS. It, it's a part of the organisation I really enjoy talking about, actually. Um, the as, as you say, ROS has always done research. We've always uh, given grants to really exciting research, including early careers grants for people that do great things. And what we've wanted to do is to not just carry on doing that, but put more money into research than ever before. So I'm really proud that over the last 18 months, despite the recession and despite the difficulties for the charity sector, ROS has uh, spent more on research grants uh, by a factor of two and a half times uh, compared to its historic run rate in research. Um, We've had more applications than ever for the last research grants round. Uh, 40 clinicians and 18 institutions are delivering research. They are the winners that we announced uh, recently. 
and um, the projects really fit into this vision that we've just been talking about. It's um, it's about gathering the evidence really and the insights to make a compelling case to policymakers. Um, and you know what I wouldn't want is that we just you know use our policy team and our you know the the, the great insights that our clinical trustees and committee members bring. We want to add to that some really compelling findings from research that really speaks for itself in terms of systems change. Um, and there are some really relevant studies there. Um, there is one on uh, using surveys and audit data to improve fracture liaison services. That's going to be crucial in showing how they work. Uh, one on prevention of fractures through uh, screening and assessment, which could be really exciting in terms of uh, uh, intervening earlier. Um, there's one on helping people start and stay on treatment. That feels really relevant because we've picked out in the strategy how osteoporosis has one of the lowest rates of treatment adherence. And that's such a factor in terms of um, people's prospect of preventable fractures. There's an important study on uh, pregnancy-associated osteoporosis uh, being funded, which will help us understand that better. Uh, and also one on using smartphones and apps to uh, for prevention. So in addition to the early career grants, um, I think that in due course, the insights and evidence that come out of these studies will be right at the heart of the questions that we're asking in Parliament, the business cases we're putting to NHS England and the devolved nation authorities, um, and right at the heart of the conversations we're having with ministers. It's interesting to hear you talk about about the research and, and the lobbying that you're doing. We know you do work, uh, the work supporting patients. We know you do great work supporting healthcare providers as well. Now, this may seem an unfair question, like asking you to choose your favourite child, but of those sort of four areas, which one would you choose as something which you feel is sort of closest to the heart of what you're doing or what you should be doing? I find that a really difficult question to answer because I think they're all um, sort of part of the same jigsaw. Really. It was supposed to be a difficult question, it's but an easy time up to now. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, I, I, I think this advocacy work is going to be really crucial in making a difference, um, you know, because if we don't change the system, I think a charity with 50 staff is not going to be able to step up to the task that we've got. Um, so, you know, when you look at the, the long-term plan, the levelling up agenda, uh, the women's health strategy, all of these are, you know, real platforms to take osteoporosis and get it into an initiative from government that will involve serious system change and should come back with some serious money to make a difference. Um, so, so for me, uh, the big change for ROS now is going to be to make sure that we are putting osteoporosis into those debates and forcing it to the top of the health agenda for the people making the decisions. And the reason I'm picking that one is because I think that will have an impact on all the others. Yeah. So, you know, our support services are, um, they're, they're full to brimming at the moment. The helpline is missing, uh, sadly, um, a couple of hundred calls a month because there's so many coming through. We went into the pandemic with record demand and it's jumped by another 30% since. So in a sense, you know, what we're doing at the moment is picking up what the system hasn't been able to handle itself. And we need to do better at that. Um, it doesn't always need to be through a high quality one-to-one -one helpline call. You know, if we get better at our digital advice, um, which I think we need to do, if we make our, our material more accessible, people might get simpler answers 
uh, to simpler questions on the website. So there's work we can do there. But in a sense, if we change the system and make the system work better for people, I could imagine ROS support services um, being in much less demand because people had, had got the help they need earlier before it becomes really acute. So I think they're all linked. But for that reason, I think this advocacy work is desperately needed for all of the other work that we do. Yeah, that's a, that's a very fair answer. You can certainly see that trickling down through everything that that the ROS uh, does. There was one other thing I, I noticed just reading through the, the document, and again, this is maybe unfair quoting something back to you from from a document, but it, it said that uh, going forward, the ROS, ROS's tone will be more informal, warmer, and more relatable. Is that something that came maybe from, from user feedback, or was that a suggestion perhaps that it, it, it wasn't as good in those areas as it, as it might have been? Uh, yes, to both. Um, we, we did hear that. Uh, we, um, we spoke to our members. We spoke to, uh, we did research with people who are not yet members, but who might want to become members and HCPs as well. And, and a bit of a common sentiment really was that um, we could do more to be relatable and to be a bit more informal in our tone. Um, and, you know, the challenge here is we, we never want to dilute the, the clinical integrity of what we say. That's crucial. We will never cross that line. We know that we've got to, we feel that responsibility really deeply. But I think we don't, we haven't traditionally gone far enough to, I suppose, speak to people in relatable terms that, that uses simple language. I think the NHS has something to teach us on this. They've done better on that recently. Um, and sometimes I get uh, members who are a bit older people in their 70s who are telling me, you know, freshen up your website, get, get your material a bit more accessible. <laughs> and I'm thinking, well, I'm getting a message here. That, yeah, that's, that's, <laughs> because that's, what are the 40-year-olds thinking? Yes, yeah, so well, my, my daughter, actually, one of the things she said to me was, you know, freshen up your website. So there's some more feedback from an even younger age group. <laughs> yeah, that's... Uh... That's you know another thing occurred to me, and you were talking about being out in the space there and making your case, or other people will will fill the space. I mean, I think any of us with disposable income and and we give to charity, and you know there comes a point where you decide where you want to donate. Do you see yourself competing against other medical charities? Is that a fair question? It is a fair question, uh, and and. You know, weirdly, I think the answer is kind of yes and kind of no, um, because for the reasons I mentioned earlier, I, I think inevitably we are in competition to a large degree because there's only a finite amount of resource for this huge health system. And, you know, the government has pledged some money for it, but it won't be anywhere near enough, of course. And there's going to be a scrum for who gets access to it. Um, so, you know, there are fantastic campaigning charities who represent fewer people than we do, you know, uh, fewer people who've got the condition than, than three and a half million that, that have osteoporosis, but who are, you know, five, ten times as big as us mm -hmm. and are have been traditionally more successful at getting access to the top decision makers and, and getting resource. So I think inevitably we need to make our case better if we want to be heard. And we, we do have the evidence. I think it's just about the advocacy to um, make sure that the doors are open to the right people to listen. Um, but but I'm, I'm going to sort of fudge it a bit and say no in one respect, because I think it's it would be really parochial if um, charities, you know, didn't work together or, you know, missed opportunities to 
in areas where actually they've got shared interests. And I, I speak to funders a lot and uh, people that give charities money as individuals. And what they tell me is that they don't want to see charities be, you know, um, artificially kind of, you know, putting boundaries up and, you know, being uh, a bit of a zero-sum game. They think that actually they want to see us working with versus arthritis. They they want to see us working with other MSK charities. You know, one thing that everyone's got in common is that apparently uh, MSK conditions as a whole get something like uh, uh, 3% of public research funding, but account for 8% of the the, the disease, the health burden. So MSK charities have a lot in common when it comes to um, uh, these arguments with government and these debates. And, you know, the chief exec of one of the other MSK charities said to me, well, we get the crumbs from the table and it's the other the other parts of the health service that, 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 that get all the, the resource. So there is a lot in common. Um, when it comes to prevention, you know, our prevention messages, apart from vitamin D, are, are not very specific to us. They're they're, they're quite generic, aren't they? And you can well imagine us joining with a host of other charities to encourage people to stop smoking and eat better. And uh, so I think it would be wrong to be parochial. And I think people expect us not to be parochial. Yeah, I think I think that's a good message, actually. I think that the synergies between charities are obvious. And I think in society, most people would like to see us working with others, even cancer charities, for example. I mean, I see a lot of work at my clinic from people who've been treated for breast cancer and prostate cancer and who, who develop osteoporosis and, and fractures. And, you know, that's a clear area for, for research, but even just for, for working together uh, with, with, with osteoporosis and, and, and cancer. So, yeah, that's a, that's a, I don't think you fudged that at all. I think that's a very honest and a very good answer. Another really good example, David, is um, there's... Uh, something we've we've been doing more of recently is to use other charities to get through to people who are at higher risk, either because of the condition that they're living with or because of the medication they're taking for the condition. Mm-hmm. Um, so some of our clinical staff have done platform speeches and podcasts like this one and webinars and Facebook Lives with charities that can give us access to thousands of people that we just can't reach ourselves. So that's a really good example of how we need each other in the charity world. And we just entered an era where actually fundraising for charities has got even more difficult than before. So um, I, I think that if we don't join forces where we can, then we'd be letting people down. I'm, I, for one, am really pleased that you're going to try and raise the profile of the disease and the severity of the disease. I apply for a lot of grants to fund my research and quite often I feel that the people reading the grants don't really have any pre-understanding, pre-knowledge about osteoporosis and the severity of the disease. It is widely considered to be something that's just a factor of old age and people don't really understand it's preventable. And you mentioned there that although MSK diseases account for maybe 8% of the health of the healthcare problems that we only get 3% of the funding. If you can close that 5%, it would be absolutely wonderful. It would help so many of us to help each other. It really would, wouldn't it? And, um, you know, I was looking at the amount of money that the government puts into osteoporosis research. There was a parliamentary question on this recently that we inspired an MP to ask. And the answer was not much more than ROS does. It was under a million last year, uh, and that feels very small to me, given the um, number of people who live with it. What seems to be coming out of the podcast in, in general, I think, I feel, <clears throat> is that osteoporosis is a grand challenge for society all around the world. And it's going to take a huge number of people all working together at every level from 
the patient, through the clinicians, up to the healthcare services, up to the government and all the way back around again. And I suppose what we're really talking about there is driving social change to make everybody's lives better. And Craig, looking at your CV, it does seem that that's the one factor which links everything that you've done. You seem to be a real driver for social change. I was wondering, where do you get your drive to do that from? Well, early on in my career, I was at the bar, as you said, Richie, and I I didn't stay at the bar because um, I really enjoyed prosecuting, defending and so on. But I, I really enjoyed making public policy arguments a bit more than that. I've always been kind of small p political, always interested in kind of public policy debates. And um, I've never really done a role in the private sector, um, apart from a brief sort of period. But otherwise, it's been public sector and voluntary sector. Because I just think these debates are really fascinating. And, uh, you know, the organ donation uh, work at um, uh, National um, Organ Donation Committee at NHS Blood and Transplant is something I sit on. And that's another area, actually, where there's a huge... I suppose, communications and public engagement challenge um, that they're doing some really good work on. And uh, there's been a, a real step change in the last 10 years in terms of uh, signing onto the register. Um, and I find that really fascinating. You know, my previous role before my first chief exec role was um, as director of communications and a regulator. So communications and public engagement has, I've always found really fascinating. And I do think osteoporosis is partly a a communications challenge, I suppose, not just to the GPs and to the other healthcare professionals, but to the public at large, to correct some of those impressions that you've just mentioned about it just being part of getting old or, um, you know, losing height just being one of those things as we, we get older. And I suppose from a communications perspective, I think what a fascinating social challenge it is to overturn that and get people thinking in terms of a, a, a disease which is treatable and beatable provided they get the right therapies. I'm writing that down for my next grant application. Yeah. We had better draw it to a close there. It's been a really wonderful interview. Thank you for coming to talk to us today, Craig. I've loved it. Thanks for having me on. It's been, yeah, really good. Thank you for taking time and for being so open in your answers as well. Uh, We uh, really appreciate it and, and appreciate the support that the ROAS have given us in our different careers and given really the whole uh, osteoporosis community across the UK. It's it's fantastic. Great organization. Um, So thank you. Uh, Thank you both as well. I mean, um, we're only as good as our clinical partners and colleagues. um, And thanks for being so close to us. Wow, David, what a wonderful interview with Craig. It was a really inspiring half hour, 40 minutes that we got to spend chatting with him. What were your takeaways from today's interview? Yeah, well, I think like you, Craig's sort of passion and professionalism for his his role came across, uh, you know, in, in spades. And uh, it's really exciting to see how he uh, how he motivates and, and and leads the ROS over the next few years over his his sort of four year plan as he as he described it. Um, it's exciting to hear him talk about this sort of equality and equity agenda, how we have to recognize there are lots of groups out there for whom we could do a lot better in terms of of their bone health. Um, people who uh, maybe live in socially deprived areas, people who don't have the same uh, confidence maybe to, I think he used the term, elbow their way to the front of the queue and, and, 
and demand a diagnosis and treatment. People even who have mental health problems or have memory problems. It's 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 exciting and good to hear that that's a, a strand which is lying across all the new things that the ROS uh, hope to do. Um, it was interesting to hear him talk about advocacy and how he wants to put that. I think it's fair enough to say sort of front and center of, of the ROS's strategy for the next few years uh, and how he feels we should be there uh, increasing the, the media exposure of osteoporosis and really up at, 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 the, at the, the top levels of government, you know, demanding recognition and demanding funding for our condition. And it's interesting as a doctor, we are supposed encouraged not to be terribly Political, you know, our, our focus is very much on the clinic, in the patient, and on the patient in front of you. And if we have to sort of right away asking for special funding for a drug, uh, you know, that's almost as much as our, our focus rises out of the clinic. And yet, you know, he's saying as, as, a, as a healthcare charity, as an osteoporosis charity, one of the most important things that, that we should be doing is, is really arguing for funding and being up there with the politicians and, and you know, making our case. And as I say, coming from a, a background as a physician, that, that's something which, you know, maybe I need to change the way I think about things. I think you absolutely do. I've always been, I've always been told at Imperial since the day I arrived that Obviously, it's important to do world-class research, which has the potential to improve people's lives. But if you're not interacting with and persuading the policymakers, the people who make decisions, the people who can allocate resources, the people who can allocate funding, then probably your research is not going to be able to benefit anyone. And I'm really excited by Craig's approach it seems that they are still going to maintain some focus on helping the people living with the disease whilst at the same time funding more research. He said he was going to increase the budgets that's going to help those people living with the disease, whether it's finding out ways to improve access to care or improving care. And at the same time, they're going to be talking to the policymakers in government, the parliamentarians, the civil service, who actually have the power to allocate the money that will run the clinics where people will get treated. And that's a really comprehensive approach. It, it feels like uh, Craig's vision is to address all of the problems around osteoporosis, whether it's helping the patients, getting money for the patients or improving patient care through research. It's, it's wonderful. You know, one of the things I wrote down, he said towards the end that osteoporosis is a, is a communication challenge. And uh, I know you're always keen to include things in research grants. <laughs> and I thought that's very that's very true. It's a communication challenge at at so many levels. I mean, it takes us back to our previous one of our first podcasts with Zoe Paskins talking about communicating with patients and just how careful we need to be and how unlike many other diseases we end up trying to explain the disease to patients and trying to explain to them how important it is and then on the other side of that just the communication with the media with civil servants with politicians communication and the challenges of communication are really front and center of everything we do about bone health and you know that's something i think i will take away from this communication is central to what we do yeah that communication has to change a lot 
depending on who the stakeholder is. The level of information has to change depending on how much people know about the disease. The message has to change as well. I think when you're talking to the policymakers, Craig was talking about how they were emphasizing the fact that money spent would have a big impact in money coming back, money saved. You know, that was the right message for the people who are allocating the funding. Whereas maybe for people who are living with osteoporosis, the message is different. It's about how do you live with osteoporosis? How can you improve your bone health? It's such a difficult task to communicate with so many different stakeholders who all need to hear different messages explained in different ways. That's a real, real tough job in its own right. And it's, uh, it's going to be really interesting to see how Craig does. Like you said earlier on, he seems incredibly professional, incredibly good communicator. I was really taken aback by how clear and concise Craig was in everything he said. It was so easy to understand him and follow what he was saying. I'm excited to see what happens. Yeah, we, we, we've so much we've so much good data in terms of of drugs and treatment, and we've got to communicate that with patients to get them to take it and and to to help them and help understand reasons why sometimes people don't persist with the medicine. And we've so much good data in terms of preventative work, as, as Craig was saying, you know, you put a little money in at one end, you prevent a hip fracture, you save an absolute fortune. It's not that we don't have the data, it's just we need to communicate that better in all directions. And if you think about what that communication means, what we have to be able to do is tell compelling stories that will change the way people feel, that will then change the way people think, and will change the way people behave. That was something that Dave taught us on the Aspiring Leaders course. You know that, I was going to say that, yeah. Tell a compelling story. If you want to make the case, you've got to tell a compelling story. That's right, that, that takes me back. Wow, it's been a, a fascinating interview today. It's been really nice seeing you again, David. Listeners, I hope you've enjoyed today's podcast. Have a good weekend. That's great. And the good news is it stopped snowing. <laughs> it's lovely sunset here. Okay. Bye-bye. Bye now.